while you're getting to the book of Psalms, we're going to talk, we're in the Psalms all summer, uh, summer in the Psalms. There was a national, uh, nationally known preacher just a few weeks ago said we need to divorce ourselves of the Old Testament. Um, uh, I mean, I th- he might have meant something different by it, but it didn't sit right. And so in, we're going to show you in the Psalms uh, one of a million reasons why that's a, a crazy statement. Um, this summer, uh, it's going to be, I'm going to be gone next weekend. David Shindell will be speaking. We got David Shindell uh, and Michael Easley. Doc, Doc Easley is going to speak a couple times for me. So you won't miss anything when I'm gone in Uganda. Uh, but we're going to be in the Psalms all summer long because it's a time of uh, soul refreshment and so we're going to start, and I'm just going to read Psalm 22, uh, verse 1. I'm going to read it all the way through uh, to verse 31. David prays, My God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you don't answer. By night, but I find no rest. And yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In your ancestors, in our ancestors, uh, put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man. That's exactly how I felt on mile 51. Scorned by everyone, (laughs) despised by the people. All who seek me, mock me, they hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth, I was cast on you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It is melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and they cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, don't be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. You still with me? All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. 
All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your word. I pray that today it will be the lamp that you promised it to be, the light that you guaranteed it could be for us. In the darkness of this world, we pray that the lightness of your word will be real to us. In your name we pray, amen. If I were to ask you, anybody have a guess of what the most popular, one of the most popular courses at Yale University is right now? What one? Women's studies. Yeah, you would think so, but you would be wrong. It is how to be happy. There is a course at Yale University that has 1,200 students registered for it, and they are paying money for a professor to tell them how to be happy. Here's a, an article that was just recently on thecut.com by Adam Sternberg, and he sort of opens up saying, hey, look, we're at Yale. All these amazing things are happening. And he says, uh, but you know, these, uh, why not be happy? What's not to be happy? We're at Yale. And he says quite a bit, it turns out. The very fact that Santos's new course, Psych 157, Psychology and the Good Life, is so wildly popular with over 1,200 students suggests that she's on to something. When she tells me one day pre-lecture college students are much more overwhelmed, much more stressed, and much more anxious and much more depressed than they have ever been, I think we really have a crisis writ large at colleges and how students are doing in terms of self-care and mental health. And some of you are that age, you know exactly what she's talking about. He goes on to say that Santos is right on both counts. College students aren't happy and neither is anyone else. According to a recent survey by the American College Health Association, 52% of students reported feeling hopeless, while 39% suffered from such severe depression that they had found it difficult to function at some point during the previous year. He says at the University of Pennsylvania, there's a slang term for this grim mask of discontent that accompanies this condition. They call it pen face. We could go further and diagnose a national case of USA face. Given that America recently ranked 18th in the UN's World Happiness Report. As I was reading that, I was sort of struck by the idea that in America we are to pursue happiness, right? We have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You know what I'm talking about? We don't want to pursue sadness, right? But what if I were to tell you that sadness is actually not your enemy? that it's actually a tool that God has given us to deal with life on life's terms. I'm going to put it differently. When we're, the only thing matters is happiness. Like we're so much that we're going to take a course on it. And by the way, she's saying things that are very helpful for them, real tools and tricks or whatever. So it's not a bad thing what she's doing. But what I'm saying is that the happiness, if you view happiness as an enemy, one of the dangers, or sadness as an enemy, one of the dangers is, is that when I see something that doesn't feel right, then I say, well, then that's not true. We live in this culture of relative truth, right? And so what they're saying is, I don't like, that doesn't feel right. What they're really saying is, I feel sad when I see that, or that hurts me when I see that. And so instead of saying, well, then it's true, they'll say, well, it's not true because I feel bad about it. 
And I think as a culture, we haven't given ourselves the proper tools on how to deal with issues that are uncomfortable in our world. You know we live in a Genesis 3 world, right? Genesis 3 world will sucker punch you. Uh, on the ride yesterday, I met a new friend. His name is Joe Jennings. I called it pulling a shindel. Um, if you haven't been around Dave, but Dave will just make a friend anywhere. So this guy pulls up nose to nose with me in the, in the parking lot. We're both early, and he's forgotten his air pump, and so I'm gonna, I, I coincidentally have forgotten mine as well. But we make friends, and, and Joe meant to ride 31 miles. He's come to ride 31 miles all the way from Memphis. I managed to talk him into riding 62 because if I'm going to suffer, someone else is going to need to suffer with me. <laughs> he did it too, right? <laughs> but on the ride, I, I realized that God had had an appointment for me with Joe, that Joe's daughter, 16 years old now, had been diagnosed last year with uh, a severe case of epilepsy, that the, the medicines haven't worked, and they tried this new experimental surgery. And so here's, here he was in the middle of a Genesis 3 world, born and raised in the church, and, but that didn't fit anything that he had. Like that wasn't, and if I look around this room, if I were to meet, I bet every one of us in some way or another has a story that has happened, is happening, or newsflash if you're young, will happen where you're gonna be in a place where that's not, what I, that's not the way I thought that it was supposed to happen. And so what do I do with that? Because if I'm honest and say, man, that really kind of hurts, that makes me sad, if I don't have language for that and I begin to skip over it, that stuff is coming out one way or the other, by the way. That's the, the makings of where midlife crises come from. It's where burnout happens, is that I didn't want to do this work and I didn't want to feel this, and so I'm just going to move on from it. I'm going to pretend it didn't happen. I'm not going to deal with it at all. And that is where the midlife crisis come from. It's, by the way, it's the playground of addictions, because in addiction is where I, I don't want to... In fact, uh, Chip Dodd explains an addiction this way. He says, it is me doing anything a shortcut to live the full life without paying the price for living it. So I don't want to risk the sadness of this, and so I'm going to do this other thing that'll cure it, and it's a shortcut where I don't have to pay the price. So if you want love and connection, there's risk in that, the risk of rejection, and that hurts so bad that I'll take a shortcut called pornography that will shortcut it, short-circuit it, and ultimately leave you in a life of addiction. And you could do that with drugs, with food, alcohol, because I'm not wanting to live and feel this, but God gave us these tools, one of which is sadness, that if I take it to the Father and say, God, why have you forsaken me? You could pray that way, and it doesn't make him angry. Isn't that a weird thought? And here's, the, in the few minutes we have, in this psalm, in chapter 22, I see that there is a place of lament. We use the word grieving. It's probably more common in our language, but lament is this biblical term. There's a praise in lament, believe it or not. There is a process for lament, and there is the power of the perfect lamenter. That's what I want to fly through today and hopefully offer you, especially if you're in the middle of a struggle right now with your health, with your marriage, with your children, with your parents, with your school. Would you listen to this and see that God gave us a tool to move from what David did? He moves from verse 1, lament, to verse 31, to praise. The prayer of ascension, the prayer here of lament. Verse 
One, he says, my God, why have you forsaken me? There is a place of lament. I was listening to a rabbi who could not have a less rabbi name, named Joe Black, <laughs> which I keep thinking Jack Black. And so if I say that, you'll know that that's, you're in on it with me. Joe Black is a rabbi in Denver, Colorado. And he was saying, this, I was listening to a podcast, one of the many, many random, when you're on a bike by yourself, by the way, for hours, it's amazing how much audible books you can listen to. He says that the book of Lamentations itself, which is the, this little small book in the middle that was written by the weeping prophet, that he, so that it is the word lamentation that's used there is a word called kinyah, Q-U-I-N-A-E-H or something. I'm not a Hebrew scholar, full disclosure. So I depend on those who are. Kinyah is a town next to Edom in Israel. It's mentioned in Joshua 15, verse 22. Kinyah is a place. And what he says that in the uh, rabbinical culture, in the rabbinical teachings, in the Jewish culture, that we know that lament is a place. It's not an interruption. It's also not a place that we stay. But it is a place along the way. And the truth of that is that I can pray like David prayed and say, I don't actually understand this, God. I don't know why this is happening, but it's okay to be sad about it and to grieve it because I don't understand. But to know that I'm not going to stay there, I'm not going to camp out there, I'm also not going to avoid it and take the scenic route, that I will go through this place called Kenya of lamentation on the way to something else. Joe Black, Jack Black, um, also says that in the book of Lamentations, chapters one through four, that every sentence, the beginning of every sentence that goes through is actually an acrostic that goes through the entire Hebrew alphabet. A, B, well, that's not Hebrew, you know what I'm saying, but the beginning of the first sentence is A, the beginning of the second sentence is B, all the way down to Z. And what he says is that in the Jewish faith, they believe that that means that there is order even in chaos. In this book that was lamenting the destruction of Israel, grieving over the loss of a country, which is something that is okay for us to do, to grieve over what has been lost in our country, while simultaneously not panicking, because there is order even in the chaos, that God is even in that. So there is a place of lament a place of where I can be there and cry out to God with honesty and with integrity and say, I don't understand. Church can be one of the loneliest places on earth because nobody knows the other is struggling with this or not. If I, if I were to you know, raise a hand and say, how many of you have struggled with this in your life and everybody was being honest, there'd be probably five or six people. But yet when we come, we feel kind of alone because we really don't have that environment when you're sitting forward and facing. And it's why it's important to embrace in a small group, a band of brothers, a group of warrior women, a place where you're safe to talk and to get it out and to know that as important as that is with each other, that it's just as important, if not more important, to give it to God. If there's nothing else that we learn from Psalm 22 is that it is safe to say this to God. I was reading a commentary this week, and he says that what we can see from this is in Psalm 39, when David says, turn away from me. At one point, Peter says, depart from me. In Matthew 8, the people said, get away from me, that that is a safe prayer because God sees your heart. It's safe to pray that way. And not only is there a place of lament, but there is a praise in lament. Here's what I mean. He actually, you can see it throughout this. He starts talking about in verse three, you're enthroned in the Holy One. I'm praising you. But think with me, 
Have you ever had to call, I don't know who works who, so I'm going to be very, very careful. Have you ever had to call, let's just hypothetically say, a cable company? If just whatever cable company, and you've had a complaint, right? And, and you get nowhere because you know that person's reading the card and they're just doing their job and they're reading the card. But eventually you're going to say something like, can I talk to your manager? I need to take this up the food chain. I've done that with airlines before. David just booked like $38,000 with a plane tickets. He had to go to Atlanta, going up the food chain to get him booked. When I take this to God, my complaint to him is actually a praise to him because I'm asking for the manager. He knows. He's got control over the situation. He is good and he is caring. So while it's important to talk to each other about these things and to speak openly, if we don't take it to the manager, to the top of the food chain, just in the prayer itself, there is a praise saying, you are good and you are caring. My God, why have you forsaken me? depart from me, whatever that prayer is that's honest. Because as we do that, we begin to remember who he is and the praise in that lament. For the sake of time, the process of lament. You go through this chapter, verses six through seven, he's, he's talking about more lament. It's just ugh, his heart. Six through 10, he's got a bit more hope, right? He's kind of like, okay, I'm, I'm hanging on to this. He's quoting the mockers, but he's saying, yeah, but I am trusting in you. Verse 11, he's actually asking a petition, be not far from me. And then back in 12 through 18, back to lament again. I'm surrounded by wild animals. My heart is like wax melting. That's exactly how I felt. I was melting on Southall Road yesterday. But man, in verse 19, he breaks out of the spiral and he makes another request you, O oh Lord, don't be far off. And then 22, he starts to break. And of course, by 31, he's like fully into praise again. There is a process of lament. This isn't six easy steps to your lament, right? There is no, I wish there were, because I certainly would have written the book and cashed the check. There is no book. But this shows the process of lament to hope. That there is a journey that doesn't stay in lament, it moves to hope. Joe Black, the rabbi, says that the, word, the Hebrew word for hope is cord, like a rope. That what David is doing is he's holding on to the cord of hope. He's pulling on, and sometimes, and somebody in this room maybe, that is all you have right now to hold on to is hope. When Rahab, the harlot, when she said, hey, hang this cord out your window. It was their word for hope because that is what you are holding on to. And this process that we have is a zig and it's a zag. It's an up and it's a down. It's backwards, it's forwards. That's what grieving is. That's how grieving plays out in your life. And for those of you that have grieved the loss of a child, and some of you in this room have, who've grieved the loss of a spouse, you know that you're doing fine one day, and then a song comes on the radio and it's like a kick in the gut. The up and the down. By the way, the Jewish culture, when they speak of weeping, they, we speak of it from our heart, they speak of it from their bowels. Joseph wept from his bowels. It's the actual what it really feels like, which is a kick in the gut. But that journey of lament, of joy, of hopeless to hope is a journey that we're all on. And if we will allow ourselves to speak out loud about it and to pray to God with it, he literally turns it into the hope that you see here. And the prayers that we get to pray, if we will pray in this way, 
man, it makes your prayer life come alive. Because if nothing else, what we know is that the place that your, your shattered dreams belong is spoken out loud in front of your father, not buried inside, not buried in the backyard, but spoken aloud. He sees your heart anyway, and there's something just healing about saying it out loud to a God that you know cares. Which brings me to the last point, which is the hope that comes from the perfect lamenter. You see, in Psalm 22, when we look at it up close, is this prayer that David prayed. But when you pull the lens back and you see he, his hands were pierced, that his bones were out of joint. In a crucifixion, your bones, your shoulder would become dislocated because you're hanging from it. They, they cast lots for my garments. Does this sound familiar? You see, David's prayer of lament to hope was a prophecy that Jesus would literally fulfill centuries later. And how do we know that? Because in Matthew 28, when Jesus on the cross chose as his, one of his final phrases, final words was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting from Psalm 22. <laughs> you see, when David said that prayer, was it true that God had forsaken him? Was it true, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 37, 4, he says, I have been young and now I am old and I have never seen the righteous forsaken. It wasn't true of David, but it was true of Jesus. Because Jesus knows the pain of moving towards somebody that he loved with all of his heart and that person turning their back on him. That's what God did on the cross that day when it went dark. And because of that, he is a savior. He is a God who is familiar with our pain and our suffering. There was a PBS special just a, know, a couple years ago. It's embarrassing, but yes, I watch PBS. My kids can vouch for this. <laughs> and it was talking about the world religions, and this reporter said that Christianity alone stands as a religion where their God actually becomes one of them and suffers like they do. And I would add one word, and that is willingly and redeems our. See, the town of Kenya, the town of Lamentation, Joshua 15, 22, when you look in the context of it, it was given to Judah. Jesus was a lion from the tribe of? Jesus redeems your lamentation. The Savior that, he says, one day will wipe away all of your tears from this Genesis 3 world. One day the prince of the power of the air, Satan, will be thrown into a, a lake of fire and chained up. One day he will wipe your tears and so every tear you've cried and didn't know and then that day it says we will fully know as we are fully known. On that day, all the tears, all the kinya, the lamentation will be over because the lion of the tribe of Judah is now the mayor of Kenya. He is the president of your Kenya, of your lamentation. And until that day, we hold on to that cord, that hope, that red Rahab's cord that she held on to of hope was red. Speaking of the blood of Christ, the scarlet thread that weaves throughout the Old Testament. That's why we can't divorce ourselves from the Old Testament. The scarlet thread begins in Genesis and goes all the way to Malachi of Jesus on every page. And I bring it back to us and say, 
today we can look and say that if you haven't let that out to God, pray this way. Pray in an honest and a true way. And for those of you, by the way, that you maybe have camped out in Kenya, maybe it's time to pull up the tent pegs. You understand that self-pity is just you asking someone else to do your sadness for you, right? And in a room like this, I got people that are like me that are just sort of like Spock-like, that don't want to feel like... I mean, be real honest, guys. When your wife cries, don't you feel like it's a fire? You're just trying to put it out? (laughs) I don't know what to do. She didn't find that nearly as funny, but... So some of you are like me, trying to figure out what to do with that. But some of you, are, you've been camped out so long, you don't even know that you have stayed in a place that was only meant to be a, a part of your journey, not your destination of your journey. But with everybody in here, we can do one thing and know one thing, and that is we can pray honestly to God. That we're praising him in our lament. We're going to the one who cares. He can do something about it. And holding on to the hope that one day, all of this, I've said this a hundred times, but I have to repeat it. Saying righteous and true are your judgments, so God is just me saying, that was awesome. That whole thing, the way that went down, I totally get it now. Righteous and true are your judgments, so God is not somebody with a gun to your head saying, say it, say it, say it. It is us genuinely going, wow, God, that's awesome. And that's the hope that I hold on to. Because I'm riding the bike with Joe yesterday, and I don't know why his daughter got epilepsy and mine didn't. I don't know. I don't know why God healed my big toe, which he totally did when it was broken in sixth grade, but didn't heal my mom of cancer. I don't know. I don't know a lot of things. But I know I have this cord of hope that I hold on to. And sometimes it's all you've got to hold on to. And somebody in this room, you're holding on to it. Don't let go. The hope to pull you through your Kenya. And allow that journey. Don't avoid it. Don't take the scenic route around it. You're going to a place where you can be honest with him and know that it moves you from lament to hope. It is not a straight line but it's a beautiful one. The journey we took yesterday on that bike, I gotta tell you, was a long one. And it wasn't straight. But you know what? The part that was straight, which is out on like Leapers Creek Road, was about as boring as I've ever, I was so bored. Because it was just straight. (laughs) Sometimes those hills and those ups and those downs, it's what life is. It's what life is about. Would you stand to your feet? I wanna pray for you. Some of you have never prayed that way. Try it. I can't. I feel like I'm... I always felt like I couldn't say that because I don't want to insult God. It's not like he, he, he knew I thought it. So I could at least, you know, it's not like I'm hiding something from him. He knows my most innermost thoughts. And they're safe with him. See, for some of you, what you've got to know is that this whole sadness thing, some of you... You've gotten everything you hoped for, but you won't even recognize that in that is still sadness because it won't last. And some of you, our friend Chip Dodd says that you have, li- you have hoped longer for the life that you hope for than you actually get to live the life you actually have. 
and there's sadness in that. That's a part of life, and it's okay. We can take it to the Father. We can take it to him, and he will turn it from hope, uh, lament to hope. Heavenly Father, I ask for you today to speak to us. To, Lord, would you bolster our courage enough to say that we can be honest with you, to know that, and to know that for those of us that are in sickness right now, we're holding on to healing. We're crying out for it. Abba, Father, would you heal us? knowing that in the in-between, that the, we're not to verse 31 yet. I'm still in verse one. Lord, would you help us to hold on to that today? You said you would never leave us. You would never forsake us. You didn't forsake David. You're not forsaking us either. We know better. The cross tells us better than that. And even when it doesn't feel like it, we hold on to you, knowing that you are good and you are powerful and you are sovereign. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. I want to leave you with one more thought. Have you heard of drafting on a bicycle? There's brand new information to me. When you watch these cyclists that are slowing down your traffic out in College Grove, when you see a team of them, the reason they're all in a straight line is the guy behind. There's one guy in the front that's taking one for the team, and everybody behind, drafts behind, it has to give out 80%, you know, like less. That's why we're, it was just such a picture of me of what the church is together. Sometimes there's somebody in the lead. We could sit behind you, and you are taking one for the team, but because I'm in community together, we can do more and go further because I'm drafting behind you. And every once in a while, the guy in the front will go to the back, and the new guy in front, while he gets to use his strength, what a beautiful picture of the church. What a beautiful picture of men and women coming together with authentic relationship with Christ to draft behind each other. You guys go have a blessed week. Pray authentically this week. Hold on to the cord of hope that he's offered us, okay?